Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Orel Braun, international relations professor at the University of Toronto, senior member of the Center for Eurasian, Russian, and East European Studies. Professor Braun, thank you so much for making some time for us here today. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Uh, so what did you make, uh, not just of, of, I guess, President Biden's speech today, but uh, what we saw and heard from Western NATO leaders in particular, just, just how unified and, and how resolute are they, in your view? It's a mixed bag. Uh, the rhetoric mm-hmm. certainly uh, suggests uh, that uh, uh, NATO is unified. The reality uh, tells us otherwise. Uh, if you listen to the Hungarian leader, he doesn't want to have sanctions that would stop the flow of oil and gas uh, from Russia, and that is what would hurt Russia and Russia's economy the most. Yeah. And when you look at uh, transferring uh, armaments to Ukraine, the kind that uh, President Zelensky is asking for, you see countries like Slovakia that are ready to transfer very potent S-300 uh, missiles that they got from Russia in the old days, that can be refitted and used by the Ukrainians against Russian aircraft. But the Biden administration has not yet moved on that because they would have to replace these in Slovakia with Patriot missiles. So there is a considerable gap between the rhetoric and the reality on the ground. And it is also rather disturbing how uh, Mr. Biden, who means well, bless him, uh, we say things that uh, would indicate something that resemble the contours of a strategy, and then it's taken back. It was very important when you first heard at the conclusion of his speech in Poland today when he said, for God's sake, this man cannot remain in power. That is Vladimir Putin. And this essentially right. was asking for a regime change. It's basically saying that Vladimir Putin has become a war criminal, that he has led his country to disaster, he has committed unspeakable crimes, and therefore the goal is to change that. Very promptly after that, the White House had to walk this line back. What is the message to Russia if the President of the United States and his government cannot get their act together? Well, is, is all of this to some extent then letting Vladimir Putin off the hook? What does it mean for the on-the-ground situation in Ukraine? Again, listening to what Mr. Biden said in uh, speaking to reporters, he said, well, sanctions do not deter. We have to keep them on for a long time, and then there will be all that pain in Russia, and that will stop this. Well, how much pain can the Ukrainians take? Because there's no type of brutality that Vladimir Putin is not prepared to engage in. And even so-called moderates in his regime, like the former prime minister and president, Medvedev, referred to the use of nuclear arms. So there's this kind of nuclear saber rattling, which is profoundly Mm -hmm. disturbing because this would be an attempt to use nuclear blackmail. So how far is Vladimir Putin and his regime, how far are they prepared to go? And what is the West prepared to do to ensure that Ukraine survives? It's one thing to say that, yes, eventually the sanctions will lead to sufficient pain that Russia will have to change policy. But will there be an independent Ukraine still standing six months from now? 
Can they see city after city devastated? Uh, are they not entitled, if this is the plan by the West, to be given the wherewithal to resist militarily, to protect their cities, to get those MiG fighters that they request from Poland, that Poland is willing to transfer, to get the anti-aircraft missiles, to provide more uh, in terms of uh, help across the board in, in as far as weapons are concerned. And when we look at uh, what Britain, for example, is providing and Estonia is providing on a per capita basis, they've given vastly more than the United States. United States could do much more than they have done so far, and depends on the Biden administration. It is wonderful to talk about unity. Unity in NATO is an important asset, and it is worth striving for that. It is also essential to try to avoid uh, enlarging the conflict, that there's not a direct NATO-Russia confrontation. But that balance has to be finely adjusted at all times to make sure that there is a larger vision. And the only Western leader who has enunciated a larger vision, who has clearly stated that you need to rebuild Western deterrence because quite evidently Western deterrence has failed in terms of preventing Russia from invading Ukraine. If deterrence had worked, they would not have invaded Ukraine. That person who enunciated that vision is Boris Johnson, who said that the invasion of Ukraine, Vladimir Putin's invasion, must fail and must be seen to fail. Well, you can't do that unless you provide much more aid to the Ukrainian forces that have put up remarkable, almost miraculous resistance against overwhelming odds. Well, and that's an important point because... Like it feels like this has been a disaster so far for Putin that that he is failing, but there is a danger, maybe I guess, for the West in in assuming that that means that this will be a failure, that this is a, essentially a done deal. But it's not, is it? We we can't guarantee at this point anything. Uh, certainly not not Russian failure here. Exactly. So we are taking snapshots of what is happening, and uh, there is a kind of disturbing tendency in some quarters to have this type of congratulatory approach where we talk about look how united the NATO is and look mm-hmm. how we are instituting sanctions and look how the Germans have turned around 180 degrees and now they are going to meet the 2% plus of GDP that, uh, that they were supposed to commit themselves to and in fact they're spending 100 billion euros this year to revive the German military. All these things are really important, and we should welcome them. But we have to step back and look at the larger picture. Yes, Russia may be suffering a good deal of pain. Yes, many soldiers are dying. But if in the end, Vladimir Putin manages to crush Ukraine, if in the end, city after city in Ukraine begins to look like Mariupol, and Ukraine collapses, then it doesn't really matter much that the oligarchs are suffering or Mm -hmm. that the Russian economy is doing poorly, Vladimir Putin would still be in charge. He would still have the nuclear weapons. He would then control Ukraine. And at that stage, he could very well use nuclear blackmail and say to Mr. Biden, take the sanctions off, or you are risking a nuclear war. What would be the response? 
I want to get your thoughts as well on, on Canada's position in all of this. I mean, obviously, Canada is, is a part of the NATO alliance, part of the G7. Justin Trudeau was in Brussels for this meeting. But in terms of our relevance, we're, we're limited right now in what we can provide to the Ukrainians. Uh, you know, we've had some some very vague talk about Canada possibly increasing defense spending, but certainly nowhere like the commitment we've seen from from Germany. Uh, how relevant is Canada in all of this in your view right now? Canada is much more relevant than we often think. We are not only members of NATO, we are a G7 country. We have a large economy. We are an industrial power. We are highly respected internationally. We have a commitment uh, in NATO, and we, in fact, we lead a battalion-sized force in Latvia, which at the very least would be tripwire in case Russia should invade that uh, relatively new NATO state. We also have a problem in the Arctic because Russia has militarized the Arctic and there is a greater possibility of navigation through the Northern Sea Route, which the Russians want to control. So we are facing multiple threats. We have tremendous economic capability, but we're not doing what Germany has done. We have not committed ourselves to increase defense spending to what was agreed upon back in 2014 at the NATO-Wales conference. We are nowhere nearly close to that 2%, and I'm puzzled why we're not doing this. We are saying on the, all the right things, but are we prepared to actually implement policies that would demonstrate a real commitment? And it is quite correct, as you say, that we are rather limited in what we can do military right now because we have allowed our military to be so starved of equipment. We do have funds, though. We can purchase defensive weapons for Ukraine from other sources, mm -hmm. and perhaps we ought to do that. We can do symbolic things. For example, three prime ministers from Eastern European states, Poland, the Czech Republic, and Slovenia, traveled to Kiev to demonstrate solidarity with Ukraine to show defiance of Vladimir Putin. Perhaps we should send our Minister of Defense or our Foreign Minister to Kiev to demonstrate that Canada doesn't just say we stand with Ukraine, but we actually take certain steps and we demonstrate that. So there are many things that Canada can do, and we have improved our performance. We are helping Ukraine in many ways. It is uh, the right thing that we will welcome Ukrainian refugees. But what we want to do ultimately is not just to be a better safe haven for refugees. The ultimate goal needs to be to preserve an independent Ukraine that can become a successful, stable democracy. If you want to hear more, Subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.